0: From evictions to infrastructure, we wrap up all the big news on the Sunday shows. This is Vince and Jason, Save the Nation. Okay, taking a look at these Sunday shows. The first clip I want to show you, Jason Nichols, involves Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on CNN's State of the Union this weekend. She was talking about the just concluded eviction moratorium. And obviously she has a lot of tough words for Republicans, but this time she took aim at conservative Democrats. Her words, take a listen.
1: House and House leadership had the opportunity to vote to extend the moratorium. And there were many and there was frankly a handful of conservative Democrats in the House that threatened to get on planes rather than hold this vote. And we have to um, really just call a spade a spade. We cannot in good faith blame the Republican Party when House Democrats have a majority.
0: Okay, first up, Jason, I think my initial reaction is the White House, and certainly uh, Speaker Pelosi cannot be pleased to have uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out in public attacking them for the state of the moratorium eviction uh, disappearance.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a fact. But I tell you, it is so refreshing to hear politicians who are willing to hold their own parties accountable. And I I feel like it's been a long time since then, uh, since we've seen uh, high-profile politicians willing to go and say the White House has done the wrong thing. We certainly didn't see it over the last four years uh, with Republicans very rarely were willing to hold Trump accountable for his failures. And now, you know, I I think most people want to be a team player with the Biden team, but they failed here. And they uh, are partly as... Uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez stated, they are partly at fault for this eviction moratorium lapsing, which puts uh, millions of people at risk for eviction. The majority of them are women. And uh, the vast majority, I believe it's 73% of the people who are most at risk for eviction are people of color. Um, And this is a White House that says that they advocate for those communities. They advocate for women and they advocate for people of color and for them to fail here, uh, was, you know, a, a major, major, uh, mistake on their part. And it wasn't like they didn't have a month of warning. I think that AOC holding them accountable publicly, she is a powerful voice, uh, for her to do so, I think is the right thing to do. And we haven't seen that in a long time where people are willing to hold their own party accountable.
0: There's like a flurry of blame shifting that went into place in the final week here before the eviction moratorium disappeared. And you heard uh, the congresswoman address it there. It's basically the White House comes out like at the 10th hour and says to Nancy Pelosi, sorry, the courts have tied our hands. Congress has to do this. Nancy Pelosi in the 11th hour writes back and these are in public letters. Uh, she goes, no, no, no. The White House has to do this. We can't we can't do it in Congress. We're not going to be able to get it done. So the White House has to do something. Everyone blaming each other. And, and as you heard Jake Tapper say, the House is now in recess. They're not going to take this up. Um, I, I did hear some criticism of the squad generally. And that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of Congress who consider themselves a part of the squad. People like Corey Bush and Ayanna Presley, um, who were out this weekend Uh, They were sleeping, kind of, you know, pretending to be homeless on the streets of uh, on the steps of the Capitol building, lying in sleeping bags overnight, um, going into Saturday morning and making a case that they need to bring Congress back to pass an extension on the eviction moratorium. But some of the the critiques I've heard from the left are that, well, where was all of this showmanship prior to Congress actually going into recess? Why? why the the wait until after uh, Congress had already left and uh, had done its business?
2: Well, I know that Cori Bush has been advocating for this for a while. I, you know, if you looked at her Twitter, um, she has been somebody who's been talking about this publicly for weeks now. And as a matter of fact, I believe Cori Bush is formerly homeless. So this is like something that is close to her uh, her heart. And, you know, the people who are, Uh, close to her, you know, people like Jamal Bowman and and other members of the progressive caucus, the, you know, my buddy, uh, Mondaire Jones, Richie Torres, all these uh, progressive politicians are trying to stand beside her and and, uh, believe that this is going to affect their districts the most. Mm -hmm. People who are in AOC's district could be affected by this. People who are in Richie Torres's district are almost most definitely going to be affected by this. I believe he's in the Bronx. So I mean, these are things yeah. that they uh, take seriously. And the White House, you know, there was some sort of confusion about whose responsibility this is, as, as you pointed out, I think people were looking to the White House for leadership. And as you said, the White House uh, waited till 48 hours before to say, Oh, no, you guys have got to do this. And within that amount of time, they weren't able to get it done. On this
0: moratorium, how long should a moratorium on evictions actually last, though? I guess that's, I mean, because that's a kind of a critical question here, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, people who are owed money, clearly, who are not right. getting it, uh, and and as a result, like the effect of what the squad is arguing for is that people not get paid. Like we need to keep that going for so- some some indeterminate amount of time, and the reason I ask that is because yeah. like we're currently in a state where we have more jobs available than we do people who are unemployed Mm -hmm. yet the economy is staggering back in and we have government programs that are continuing to you know let people not pay rent uh, well up until now
2: so uh, my understanding is that part of this is actually rental assistance so part of this is giving money to the landowners or the landlords who are owed the money, you know, and part of the requirements uh for this eviction moratorium were that you need to show that uh you are making partial payments. You know what I mean? Uh you couldn't afford, first of all, you were in financial distress. Uh you can't be someone who is who's, you know, caking up and doing really well and running your online business and and still affect or effectively believe that this applies to you right and the other part of this is that rental assistance is given to landlords and I'll tell you a little just quick story sure um you know my grandmother uh was a landowner you know she bought her brownstone in Harlem in the uh I guess like mid-60s or something like that and she was a single mother three children um Although, you know, albeit I think one or two of them were grown at the time, but single mother, two children, uh three children, excuse me, um and was plunging toilets for a living. And this was a time when you could buy a home, you know, as a person who was plunging toilets for a living in in Manhattan. Seems like a lifetime ago, right? Man. Um but she kept that and when she, you know, uh she, became an elderly person. That was her only form of income, right? So people who think that just because you, and, and a lot of times she was much poorer than the people who rented from her. So I I think there's this, this belief that because you are a landlord that somehow you are wealthy. Right. And I think that that's a misunderstanding. I think people need to protect the, the low income A lot of these people are seniors that are landlords, and this is their primary form of income. And if we are going to do an eviction moratorium, it has to come with a stipulation that there's rental assistance uh, for these landlords. And and that's what it was supposed to be. But I think everyone on the Democratic side and Republicans who just seem to not think that this is important, I think that there is a failure on, on all of their parts.
0: Let me go to another clip from State of the Union this weekend. Uh, Yeah, Jake Tapper talking to uh, Maine Senator Susan Collins. Here's that exchange.
1: I fought very hard to have an independent, bipartisan, nonpartisan outside commission to look at all of the events of that day. And uh, I'm very disappointed that it was not approved. I think it would have had far more
3: credibility. Uh, Than Speaker Pelosi's partisan um, committee that she has set up. But we should have had a 9-11 style commission to fully look at what happened.
0: Okay, so uh, a fascinating exchange. And uh, where you have Susan Collins coming out and going, look, this thing's partisan. And uh, I wish we actually had some sort of bipartisan commission. Now, you and I have talked about this before, Jason, I I think that uh, Congress's involvement in this is only going to uh, sow more division, regardless of what the actual composition of any uh, committee would be on this subject. Um, but that being said, uh, I did think it was interesting that you know Tapper object, seemed to object to, uh, as well, to Jim Banks and Jim Jordan being on that committee. But you know they could have been, I think, rather useful uh, in terms of of offering new information or bringing it down down new lines of questioning uh, if we're going to have hearings in Congress?
2: Well, I, I think uh, Tapper was doing his job as a um, as a journalist, which is to push back and not just accept what people say. And that's what we should expect from all of our journalists who, who do the, that job and are, have a member of Congress in front of them. They should not just accept it. Uh, but we see that when our media is so ridiculously mm-hmm. partisan. Um, I do think that uh, Jim Jordan, having Jim Jordan would have turned this into a crap show. And that's what we were trying to avoid. And there were, we got to remember that there were five members, you know, uh, put out there and you know, they rejected two and they still had three members and they could have replaced those two. But McCarthy decided to grab his ball and go home. And what you learn, you know, as a kid is when you take your ball and go home, the game doesn't stop, particularly if they have another ball. So that would occur. Uh, and the other thing is that we have to remember that this is a bipartisan effort because Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney are very conservative. Liz Cheney is arguably the most conservative. She voted with. President Trump 92% of the time. And again, as I said, I think in our last show, when you compare that with her probable uh, replacement, at least ethic, who voted with Trump 77% of the time, Liz Cheney is far more conservative. So, in, in that regard, it is a bipartisan effort. And they had an opportunity to have five Republicans on there, and they chose not to. Um, so, I, you can't complain about it. Uh, you had you had an opportunity. You could have replaced Jim Jordan, and we know now Jim Jordan may get subpoenaed, so we may see Jim Jordan after all.
0: You know, but the idea that like one congressman in particular can be excluded because they might be a material witness. I mean, isn't the idea that like every member of Congress is in some way a material witness to the events of January sixth? I mean, and wouldn't that like You know, the the whole process itself, there's there's a prejudice sort of built into a congressional investigation here because it directly involves the the well-being of members of Congress. That that's right. That's the center of of this. So by that mean by that, all I'm saying is by that metric, every member of Congress would presumably be disqualified from being a member of a committee that's looking into the events of January 6th. And, And I'll just add, as I've said before hundreds of active investigations. This is the most expansive investigation ever conducted by the United States Department of Justice. Um, There's no shortage of investigations going on into January 6th. Congress is is now doing something that I think will be, unfortunately, nothing more than a divisive partisan exercise.
2: Yeah, well, again, as I said, this is not partisan because there are Republicans and Democrats involved in this process. Now, if you want to say that it is... uh, you know, that there's some sort of conflict of interest, maybe, I, I think that might be what you're saying in terms of uh, members of Congress and in investigating this, that was the same argument that was made with the FBI investigating it, where maybe the FBI was somehow involved, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Congress actually going through and doing this investigation is actually really important and getting to the bottom of it. And, uh, you know, I think Congress, uh you know, looking at this from, they they had the opportunity, the minority leader had the opportunity to put people on it and he chose to punt Um, and that's what he did. And that's that's gonna be uh, how it goes. I think one of the things that we're gonna need to hear from now is Jim Jordan, who, you know, nervously can't decide whether he spoke to Trump before or after or both uh on the day of january 6th i think a pretty memorable day uh so i think people need to hear from him Uh, i think they're going to avoid he's going to use every legal means to avoid testifying but i think that he is part of this and he should not be on the committee when he is an important witness as to what happened why for example uh the the uh national guard didn't show up what the president was thinking what why the president's reaction was slow to this uh he is a, i think a material witness in a way that you know aoc is not so i think it's important to have him in that regard rather than have him on the committee stirring things up and making this into a clown show
0: yeah i mean i i'll just i'll register my disagreement with you i don't think he would have turned it into a clown show i i do think that there would be more drama for sure uh in a hearing that includes jim jordan but um it also would have included, I think, relevant questions about the lack of preparation in the Capitol and the role that um, congressional leadership played in failing to properly secure the Capitol ahead of January 6th, given what we know now about the available intelligence ahead of that uh, that event. Um, yeah. Let me I mean, play another. Fair. Let me let me play another cut for you. This is Adam Kinzinger uh, on this weekend. Um, He's uh, on ABC's This Week with Jonathan Karl talking about this very topic, about who
3: might be subpoenaed before this committee. Uh, Liz Cheney has suggested, including in an interview on This Week, uh, that anybody who spoke to Donald Trump during those hours. Uh, should come and testify before the committee. She suggested it could even mean subpoenas, uh, a subpoena for Kevin McCarthy. And now we've learned Jim Jordan also talked to Donald Trump on January 6th. Would you support subpoenas to the Republican leader in the House and to and to Jim Jordan?
1: I would support subpoenas to anybody that can shed light on that. Um, if that's the leader, that's the leader. If it's anybody that talked to the president that can provide us that information, I want to know what the president was doing every moment of that day after he said, I'm going to walk with you to the Capitol. After Mo Brooks stood up and said, we're going to kick backside and take names. Today's the day that, you know, patriots take their country back from other people. Uh, I want to know what they were doing because that's going to be important. I want to know. You know, If the National Guard took five or six hours to get to Capitol Hill, did the president make any calls? And if he didn't, why? And if he did, of course, then how come the National Guard still takes five hours? I think had the president picked up the phone and made a call, the guard would have been there immediately.
0: Okay, Jason, Adam Kinsinger saying, look, yeah, leadership is fair game. We could have to throw a subpoena at Kevin McCarthy. Is this a, a good precedent? Is this a good idea?
2: Well, I mean, if, if he has information and, a, and he's a material witness, um, I think it is a good idea. I don't, I don't think anybody's um, above the law or, or above being subpoenaed if they have relevant information. Um, I think Kevin McCarthy will fight that subpoena in, in every way possible and i'm not so sure that they're they're ever going to get him to, to actually testify it's going to be very difficult and, and as adam Kinzinger, kinsinger kinsinger or kinsinger i don't know but um uh as the congressman stated um you know they still don't know how they're even going to compel people like that to testify right um it, so it'll be difficult but i think if you have relevant information and you know you're under i think you should be under oath and uh, give that information so that the American people know and so that this investigation can be completed and we don't have to go on forever or we, you know, don't have to close this investigation out without knowing all the facts. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important. And I don't think he's above that. I don't think anybody's above that.
0: Do you think Nancy Pelosi genuinely wants a rapid investigation? I mean, how long, how long would be a good amount of time for this to run in terms of her political calculations?
2: Well, I don't know that she's making political calculations here, but if she is, I, of course, politicians make political c- calculations, but, um, I don't think that, you know, um, it should be something that's rushed. I remember there was a, a, a politician many years ago who used to tell this sexist joke when he would give speeches. Um, his name was Adam Clayton Powell. He did some good things, but, uh, he used to tell this joke that, you know, when he would give a speech, it would be like a woman's dress. You know not too long as to bore you uh but not too short as to <laughs> offend you um so I, again I, I think it has to be some like you know excuse the 1960s the sexism <laughs> there
0: it's a pretty good line but,
2: though <laughs> yeah i mean it was like um you know i think she has to find that kind of sweet spot where you can find truth you can get the kind of testimony that you need um, I think the political calculus went into having those police officers tell their their stories that, that's and for say sure. what they yeah. and say what they saw and what they experienced. I think that that was something that hit most Americans in the heart, um, hearing you know law enforcement officers talk about being harmed and being in harm's way and being you know insulted in the ways that they were. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly think you know now it's about you know uh, the investigation and seeing where it leads. And it could be a short investigation, it could be a very long one. Um, I think from a political standpoint, it can't be too long. Um, or else the American people will get will get bored, you know, and and move on and uh be thinking about how am I gonna keep a roof over my head? How is how is my government working yeah. towards you know, my goals individually. Look, I'm
0: I'm uh, as you know, I've been looking at all of this very cynically, this particular exercise, because I, I do believe people like Adam Kinzinger and um and uh, uh I'm sorry, what's her face the uh, Liz Cheney. Cheney Liz Cheney, thank you uh, are being played here I think they're being I think they're being used uh, tactically by Nancy Pelosi and the, the goal here is purely political. Um, this is my view, of course, and You know, again, given the the extensive unprecedented investigations into the events of January 6th that are going on at all all corners of our government right now, um, I I honestly believe that she's going to kind of keep an eye on the polls here. And as soon as it if it becomes an albatross for her, she's got to nip it in the bud and bring it to a conclusion uh, because it'll be costly in a world where there is no margin for error going into next year. And she's got enough already on her plate in her political balancing act with uh, uh, a left-wing or progressive caucus that is um, very much not in line with where uh, some of the more corporate elements of her party are. Um, So, you know, she has a tremendous balancing act going in to next year. And I I recall, remember, during the uh, 2020 impeachment of Donald Trump at the beginning of last year, Um, Donald Trump became more popular politically in polling during the course of the impeachment. In other words, like as it stretched on, people felt like more and more like he was merely being harassed by the process and his polling numbers went up. Um, I, you know, who knows what's actually going to transpire here? Obviously, there's a lot of political calculus that's going into this moment, this, this decision to push ahead, despite the fact that, um, she wasn't able to secure a bipartisan uh, committee, um, in the first place is to do that 9-11 style commission that she had sought. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, it's, you know, I, I honestly think this is a pretty big gamble for Nancy Pelosi.
2: Um, and I think that there are people out there who, who experienced what happened and the police officers who, who sustained injuries and they're certainly not looking at this politically. They want to know what happened. And I think that it is the the leader, uh, the majority leader's role uh, to get to the bottom of it. Congress, they want to do it. These police officers have been going to senators' offices and to certainly to congressmen and women's offices uh, wanting this done. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that, of course, that there's political calculus in the back of Nancy Pelosi's mind. She's, she's a savvy politician. Um, but I also think that this is something that many constituents want. Um these this is something that people in Congress want to know the answer to. Uh there are the, you know, lots of American people who want to know the answer to this, it's kind of like you know, what you saw Republicans do with Benghazi, where it was, you know, people there are people who genuinely wanted answers, but there was also a lot of political calculus that went into that long investigate long costly investigation. Yeah. Um this is a little different. This was on American soil at the Capitol, um, and I think she has a responsibility to to actually investigate it. But, you know, I agree with you. One place where I agree with you is politicians do political calculus. <laughs> there are some political considerations being well,
0: here's, here. I want to play a clip for you now that gets into political calculus specifically around this infrastructure package that we saw. It came out literally overnight last night. There's a bipartisan. Uh, infrastructure package, the framework of it, uh, the the text of it being released overnight. Uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I want to go back to her appearance um, with uh, CNN's State of the Union this weekend uh, and talking about how that infrastructure package is not good enough, that there needs to be a little more than a trillion dollars in additional spending that uh, House Dem- some House Democrats really want in order to pass that infrastructure package. Here she is.
1: I respect that we have to get Senator, you know, Cinema and Mansion's vote on reconciliation. They should also respect that there's a very tight house margin and that we have to be able to uphold our end of the bargain as well. And House Progressives are also part of that of that majority. And how so, many
3: how many House Progressives do you think are with you on this?
1: I believe a very large amount of the Progressive Caucus. The total amount is about 90. I, you know, I am not the the whip of the Progressive Caucus, <laughs> but what I can tell you is that it's certainly more than 3. Um, and it is in the double digits, absolutely.
3: Enough to prevent it from passing.
0: More than enough. Okay, Jason, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman saying, look, we're just not going to pass this piece of legislation unless we get a completely different piece of legislation also passed. She did say something interesting there. She was like, you can't just have one House dictate the legislation that's passed, but the effect of blocking that legislation from being passed would be that the House does that very thing
2: yeah i i you know it's an interesting thing i i i think that first of all uh budget reconciliation is not as simple as it sounds um you know you have to go through the senate parliamentarian and the cbo uh has to also be on board and you know there there are a lot of rules around reconciliation can't increase federal uh, deficits after 10 years so there's a lot of calculus that has to go into a, a budget reconciliation. Yeah. I think people think it's you know some sort of simple process, and it's not. Um, <clears throat> people also forget that Republicans used budget reconciliation. I know it's become like a household phrase now, but that's how they passed their tax bill in, in uh, 2017. So this is not something that's never used or some sort of trick that Democrats are pulling out. Right. This is used all the time. Uh, well, not all the time, but it's used commonly enough. It is. And it was certainly used in, in 2017. Uh, I think AOC also recognizes that there's really no bipartisanship when you're sitting across from Mitch McConnell. Um, and obviously, she he's in the Senate, she's in the House. But when, when you're dealing with someone like Mitch McConnell, you know, in the words of Meek Mill, uh, Meek Mill, there's only wins and losses. You know what I mean? So you know, I I think the Democrats have to approach it that way. Um, I do think with this whole infrastructure package, um, I think as she kind of alluded to in that clip, there are things that need to be worked out. Like, I think people think hey, bipartisan group, they gave, you know, Democrats what they wanted. They gave them the charging stations. They gave them the water infrastructure. Um, they gave them broadband you know, they've come up with this, they've got this, you know, uh, trillion dollar infrastructure package and 500 billion is going toward those projects, Um, Democrats should be happy. But there are certain elements, you know, in there, you know, kind of small, you know, parts of that, which would increase the amount of toll roads and, and things like that, that actually would affect working class Americans that I think AOC is correct that need to be looked at and need to be worked out for anybody. Anything. Um, you know, we right. need to look out for, for working people. And I think so that, that
0: would, that would be interesting. That, that is one obvious component to this is like, okay, working on the terms of that package in particular, I guess yeah. the big thing that stands out to me is that she seems like she has a, a pretty big desire to poison pill this thing and because she wants to pass a separate, Uh, I think 1.4 trillion is the estimate um, package of other spending priorities that they have in the house that some Democrats have in the house. And they want to do it through reconciliation, as you noted. But the problem they're running into is that they don't have enough support among the senators in the Democratic Party in order to do that. Uh, So right now, they're at a bit of a standstill. So, you know, AOC is not the only one saying this. Nancy Pelosi has been saying this for weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this infrastructure package doesn't work unless we also get the reconciliation package as well. Mm-hmm. It, it feels to me, Jason, that like you know, without without commenting explicitly on the merits of the in, of the individual items of the infrastructure package, which are totally worth scrutiny, um, that this is one of those: Are we about to make perfect the enemy of the good? Are, are we about to defeat um, things that act- Americans do need in terms of um, infrastructure? Uh, rejuvenation in the United States in the interest of passing some other giant package, because you don't want to lose your leverage. You feel like, okay, that popular thing infrastructure is the only chance I have to pass trillions of dollars of spending in my other priorities.
2: Yeah. I, I think, um, I think that, you know, in many cases that I would agree uh, with you about making perfect the, the enemy. of, and, and I think that you, you certainly have a good point there um that uh this and and from a political standpoint looking at the you know the political calculation there i think it could really hurt democrats um if they get nothing done um i think that this is a big opportunity to to pass something bipartisan it makes joe biden look really good to sign a bipartisan bill where he got support from democrats uh, excuse me from republicans Right. Um. And it, it will, I think, help Democrats more than it will help Republicans politically. I think it helps everybody, honestly, when people see that uh, something popular like infrastructure, something that's that everybody wants gets done and that Republicans were willing to bend on that. Republicans, of course, have the argument to the American people. See, we're willing to work with Democrats. And then when another issue comes up, they'll say, We, you know, we try working with them, but they don't want to work with us. You know, Uh, Democrats, of course, can say, see, we get things done. We get things done for the American people. Infrastructure didn't get done with the last administration and they had four years. So I think that this is actually good for everybody, but it will help Democrats more to get it done, yeah. even without a budget reconciliation. So can I, I think that that needs to be considered?
0: Let me posit something. I think it's happening here. So Pelosi has been saying exactly what AOC is saying this weekend, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. which is like, well, we got to get the reconciliation package passed as well. That's Those are the rules. But I have a feeling that the reason she's talking like that is because she's trying to hold back uh, a civil war within her own party. So she needs, she wants the squad on her side. She wants the most left-wing elements of her own party on her side. So as a result, she has to do the lip service that she's taking them seriously and that she's gonna pass their priorities. But in the end, I would not be surprised. And you alluded, you, you actually just made me think of this. when you were talking about how complex reconciliation is. All it would take is the Senate parliamentarian to say, sorry, that doesn't satisfy the terms of reconciliation. For then Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to be able to turn around and say, "Sorry, we can't pass this package. The parliamentarian told us it wouldn't work," uh, and so therefore we're going to pass infrastructure. Reconciliation is not going to work just because. Sorry, this is this out of this force that's outside of our control. Although it is technically in their control, there's this force that's outside of our control that we couldn't that that ruled reconciliation ineligible. So we'll pass infrastructure now. I I just think that there's clearly like some walking on eggshells going on here among Democrat leadership.
2: Well, I, I think that, you know, them trying to pass the buck will not work uh, with some of the politicians, you know, in that Progressive Caucus, like that, I that I just mentioned, the, right? The Mondaire Joneses, the, you know, the Corey Bushes, the AOCs, the Ilhan Omar, they're, they're not going for that. Um, they know that, of course, when the Senate parliamentarian sends it back to them and says this doesn't work, or the CBO says this does not fulfill the bird rule, um, what you can do is you adjust it. <laughs> you know, you make adjustments and then you send it back to them. Um, and if they don't get it done, um, if they just you know yeah. take a no for an answer, it shows that they didn't have any energy behind it. And I right. think that that's just going to piss the progressive wing off even more. Right. Um, I or, or, are you blow up, or you or you blow up the filibuster to change everything. Uh,
0: now, speaking of that, I want to play a clip for you about the filibuster real quick. This is uh, Joe Manchin this weekend. Uh, he was asked about uh, whether or not he would create an exception to the filibuster only for uh, 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 voting rights legislation is
3: what they refer to it as HR one. Is there any circumstance under which you could imagine allowing a carve out for the I know you oppose getting rid of the filibuster. But there, there are some people in the more moderate camp, like uh, Angus King of sure. Maine, who's an independent, uh, who said that he's possibly willing to step back from the filibuster, his opposition, to getting rid of the filibuster just for voting rights because he's so concerned and it becomes it's become so partisan. Can you imagine ever doing that? Jake, I can't imagine a carve-out because I was here in 2013 when it was called a carve-out. We're just going to do the cabinet for the president and then it went into, we're going to do the judges who are lifetime appointments for circuit and district. They were even going to do Supreme Court, but they didn't at that time. The Democrats were in control. 2017, Mitch McConnell's in control, comes right back in, and guess what? That carve-out worked to really carve us up pretty bad. Yeah. Then you got the Supreme Court. Okay? So there's no stopping it. And if we don't put this place back in order, you get rid of the filibuster, which makes us work together. And I've said this. The whole the, the, the brilliancy of our, of our founding fathers was this. Why in the world did they give two senators to Rhode Island and Delaware at the time they were forming this great nation of ours when they told New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio, hey, you only get two two." Mm too. It was basically to make us work together so that the big states wouldn't overrun the little states. It's a minority participation.
0: Okay, so Joe Manchin making an argument that like every time we establish another carve out, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse to the point that the filibuster is so gutted and that simple majorities in the Senate will be able to do anything they want uh, if they have power with them, without the minority being able to stop them at all. Does that argument have merit?
2: Uh, I, th- I think it does. I, I think it has merit. Um, and again, as I've done several times, um, and you know, I, I am a fan of AOC and all of the people who criticize Joe Manchin. Um, as I think she was referring to him in one of the earlier clips, you know, being one of the conservative Democrats. Um, But AOC is in, what is it, the Bronx and Queens? Like, she's not in West Virginia, (laughs) you know what I mean? And I go to West Virginia. Um, I was about 10 minutes from West Virginia, uh, you know, when we were filming our show, Life and Justice. And I'll tell you right now, the best that Democrats will ever do in West Virginia, at least for the foreseeable future, until they start really building up infrastructure and really trying to, you know, political infrastructure and trying to convert, you know, some of the younger West Virginians, the best they're gonna do is Joe Manchin. So we need to understand that. We need to work with Joe Manchin. We need to talk to Joe Manchin. Um, I've seen people who are trying to do that. The Congressional Black Caucus has done that. Uh, Some other community leaders have tried to talk to Joe Manchin about some of the things like, you know, HR1. Uh, he seems like it's a hill he's gonna he's gonna die on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to stand his ground on on what he believes, and he believes in bipartisanship. Um, I think he's you know a politician who's from another era, who, who thinks that we can achieve that. And in some cases, uh, he's you know he's right, and you know with infrastructure, there were like, you know, it seems like the two sides are coming together to make some some uh, changes. Um, and or hearing each other out, but are largely that's not happening in a in a post Trump America. It's just not. Um, and so, you know, getting rid of the filibuster does give power to simple majorities. Um, but if it's not something that's done that's legal, then you have courts you know, as the backstop to overturn it. You know, you, you sue, you say, look, this isn't legal, this isn't fair, this isn't right. Um, and I think that the, that right now, in our current political environment, without the simple majority, um, you know, being able to make decisions, then nothing right. will get done. But, you know, that's, there are, that's the fear.
0: There are all sorts of things that are obviously legal, that are completely unjust, that would stand up to scrutiny in a court system right so i mean you could have any number of laws that a simple majority could pass in the house and senate that would be tyrannical that wouldn't necessarily be unconstitutional uh, and so for that so reason you're saying the
2: constitution supports tyranny is that what I'm you're saying, saying no okay I'm,
0: I'm well no what i'm what i'm saying is that like that the passions of the majority were one of the things we're trying to guard against because they can change moment by moment they can change party by party and so having some slowness to the changes in our legislative in our legislation at a federal level is a good thing for people of both parties, even if it's hard to detect it in the moment, especially if you control the house, the Senate and the white house, I understand the insatiable appetite to blow up the filibuster. When you agree with everyone who's in power, that makes tremendous sense. Um, and I, I would say on the merits right now, um, the argument for HR one in particular, um, what what they what they call for the for the People Act, which is a federal overhaul of our election system, I, I, I Democrats have not made a good argument for it. They have not. I don't think they've. And obviously, you and I have had some debates on this. We've had, we've found some areas of agreement, but I have sort of the hysterical reaction to uh, these voter integrity laws that are being passed in a number of states across the country. It has just been so overwrought and so out of proportion what's actually occurring with what's actually occurring in those states that um the idea that we would blow up the filibuster as because this is such an extraordinary moment, they haven't, to me, on the merits, ever successfully come anywhere close to making the case that it's time to smash the world's biggest fire alarm in the United States Senate.
2: Well, we know that there are, you know, um, with these voter suppression laws around the around the country, um, we have to, you know, I, I think that people are thinking, like, for example, when they called it, said that these are, are Jim Crow measures, we know <clears throat> for a fact that the people who are going to be suppressed the most are going to be people of color. And the difference is that it's not going to suppress all people of color's votes. It's about shaving that three or four or 5% of the vote off and therefore ensuring victories in in certain states. And I think that people are alarmed about that. This is a time where more people are voting, more people of color are voting, more black people, more Asian Americans, more Native Americans are voting than ever before, particularly post, you know, when we're talking about 2020, we had incredible, an incredible amount of turnout. And that was a positive thing for an, for American democracy, and for us to go and say, "No, we don't want those people to vote. We want fewer people to vote." I think is problematic. We want to take away all of those avenues to vote and all of the voter accessibility that was there. And you know, again, for talking about voter integrity. Um, yeah. And, and election security, the For the People Act has election security measures in it. You know, that's what people are, are missing is that it actually gives grants for updating voting equipment secure and uh, makes security uh, requirements for companies that sell voting machines. Um, you know, as it exists, you know, these folks are, are free right. uh, federal regulation, and now you're going to put some regulation on these voting machines. But people complained about, you know, the act also has uh, RLAs, you know, uh, like hand, excuse me, hand counts. Um, So there are a lot of things that you would think Republicans would be like, hey, I'm with that. This is what we've been talking about. This is the voter integrity and it's coming from uh, the federal government. And this is, you know, something that's good and it's going to and they're going to help fund it. Um, but for some reason, they don't like that, and it shows to me that it's not really about expanding the ability to vote and uh, keeping our elections secure. Because if they did, then they would support for the People Act.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's also there's a lot of elements that would make our elections more vulnerable in the for the People Act as well. I mean, there's the uh, basically that you would be able to circumvent mandatory voter ID laws uh, in states. Uh, they create exceptions to that. Uh, additionally, you've got ballot harvesting, potentially nationwide. Ballot harvesting is the the single most corrupt avenue in all of in any election system. That nobody of any partisan affiliation should support it. Uh, and for those who don't know what it is, ballot harvesting is literally when a third party political operative can handle your ballots for you. Somebody who's paid for, paid by a party can come and collect ballots and then go drop them off somewhere else. That is, that is the most obvious conflict of interest you could possibly produce in a uh, in an election system. So it makes it it makes sense to have. Uh, we've talked about this before. I think some basically make it as easy as easy to vote as possible. Make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. That really is. That's a critical way to to handle things. And I'm sure there are elements. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I think you laid some of them out. Where you're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Like there's going to be an element or two built into H.R. 1, where you will find agreement. But broadly, this is about taking away the rights of states to create the the election systems that they want to for themselves and to defeat some of the voter integrity measures that those states put in place. And if you violate the civil rights of, of voters, the Voting Rights Act does exist. It is explicitly a remedy for that and it should go to court if you're violating the civil rights of voters. And we have a law on the books to address it naturally, the Voting Rights Act well, again,
2: 1965. One of the things that we know that's happening, first of all, we, we know that the the uh, Voting Rights Act has been completely uh, stripped naked now with, with uh, post Shelby County. And the other thing is, we also know that, um, you know, with Joe Manchin, he supports uh, actually strengthening the Voting Rights Act. That's what he's talking about is, you know, right. John Lewis, uh, you know, Voting Rights Act is is something that he supports to strengthen the Voting Rights Act. He wouldn't support that if the Voting Rights Act didn't need to be strengthened again. Um, so and I also will tell you that with some of the ways in which people are being are being disenfranchised. Um, you know, or, or there's the ability to disenfranchise people for future elections. Um, I think it's important that we take steps, uh, to protect elections nationwide. It shouldn't be that one state has, you know, a uh, really good turnout because they have really good voting laws and then other States can suppress votes that they don't like. We need some, some level of uniformity and also the, for the people act gives States the resources, you know, to to um, not only keep their elections secure, but also um, to make sure that people are able to vote. For example, with automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is is a good thing. I don't know why anybody would be against automatic voter registration. Why anybody would be against same day registration. Why anybody would be against. Uh, giving uh, voter voting rights back to uh, people who have finished their sentences um, and have paid their debt to society. I'm not sure why anybody is against that, but apparently Republicans in some of these states, because they've been fed a lie about some sort of election security issues, and they've been fed a lie that's been disproven so many, so many time, uh, times over, and it's gone to court a million times, um, since they've been fed that, they they are now going out and also making it easier to overturn elections. And in some of these states, the other issue is that some of these uh, legislatures are taking power away from people who are administering elections and putting the power in their own hands. And these were bipartisan bodies that were running elections in these states. And now it's you know purely Republican in certain places. You can't tell me that uh, Republicans don't want to le- win elections. And for people who argue for bipartisanship, you should want a bipartisan body to run your elections in your state. And that's what's been uh, taken down in places like Georgia. Um, And so I think, you know, everybody focused on the wrong things. They focused on water and things like that, when there were much more troubling elements of those laws. And the For the People Act makes it so that rural white people can vote and urban black people can vote and vice versa. um, And giving more people, more Americans access to the ballot.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, we've talked a lot about Texas and Georgia. I mean, those are two states where the laws that they passed in Georgia and the law that they're looking to pass in Texas, I think in the end, we'll see. We'll see with the passage of time. I think more black people will be enfranchised by those laws than disenfranchised uh, because, as I said, fewer of their votes will be thrown out, uh, especially in mail-in balloting uh, with those laws going into place. Okay, I want to play a uh, cut for you. This is uh, from reliable sources. We'll switch over to vaccines now Uh, via Brian Stelter, On this weekend and uh, they're talking about some of the corporate media coverage of the cdc's data on friday so the cdc comes releases data friday to explain why it sought a mask uh recommendation for high transmission areas in the country for even vaccinated adults and uh some places like the new york times released headlines that were interpreted as hysterical overreactions that worked against the effort to get people vaccinated because it left people with the impression that people who were vaccinated were being rampantly infected with COVID when that is not true. Here's uh, the reaction on CNN this weekend.
3: The White House is very frustrated, and they're frankly concerned that the news media is overly focusing on these breakthrough infections and not focusing
0: on the larger issue, which is unvaccinated Americans spreading the coronavirus to their family and friends and and co-workers. Uh, So they've actually taken the step of reaching out to news organizations, trying to get them to do what you're saying, to reset the coverage, to focus on the the real issue. Because we know these breakthrough infections, at least uh, from the data we've seen uh,
1: don't really result in hospitalizations or deaths. It's the unvaccinated who are ending
0: up in the ICU and, you know, needing some, uh, some medical attention. Okay. So you've got now CNN, even going after some of the more traditional news outlets and pointing out that the white house is uh, is pretty upset with what they're referring to as hyperbolic coverage of, uh, of the vaccine data that we got on Friday. What do you, what do you think of this, this whole thing, the way that the media handled the CDC data and, and the way we should think about this?
2: Um, so uh, I think that the media handled it poorly. Um, I think they were talking about all these, you know, I, I, I actually, it's not often that I agree with Brian Stetler uh, or Stelter, sorry. Uh, but I have to agree with him and, and, you know, the people that he had on that, on that panel, I won't say I, disagree with him often, but he's, you know, he's not my guy. Um, but I I would say, you know, the talking about these breakthrough infections, Mm -hmm. um, there is a difference between getting the sniffles from COVID and ending up in an ICU. And this did not help the vaccine cause, you know, to talk about Oh, all these people, are, you know, are break, you know, getting these infections, and they're breakthrough infections and all that. Yeah. we really yep. should be measuring hospitalizations and deaths, that's that's the big measure, and unfortunately, we're probably going to see that go up. A lot of the scientists, whether you believe the CDC or not, whether you believe NIAID or not, uh, or Fauci or whomever um they're all saying that over the next couple of weeks those hospitalizations and deaths are going to spike again yeah uh, because people are not getting vaccinated well you get vaccinated, not. yeah i mean hope not you know god forbid but and we've seen like in
0: places like india and the uk we've seen places like india and the uk they've already ridden the delta variant down and so there is some expectation i saw dr scott gottlieb suggesting this we could be really at the peak on delta ourselves and could see the the numbers trail off over the next few weeks um, with the Delta variant. But I do want to introduce something else here. That's kind of fascinating. I I didn't know this because I'm not an expert on, uh, on Provincetown in, in Cape Cod, but apparently the nature of the event that the CDC is relying on is not exactly generally applicable to the entire country. And what I mean by that is I'm reading here from, I'm gonna read a thread here from an AIDS and gay rights activist called Peter Staley. He's a, Verified on Twitter, 16.2 thousand followers. Uh, But he was going through this data um, that's being shared. And he said this. So, So let me first set this up. It's Provincetown, which is in Cape Cod. And this was July 4th weekend. And apparently it was a gigantic, like, gay festival, basically, that was going on in a town that has a lot of old school um, structures that are like low ceilings, a lot of in- enclosed interior space, densely packed bars. You know, the conditions were, are theoretically very ripe for the spread of, of COVID of any kind. And Peter Staley writes this in his Twitter thread. If the CDC has increased their Delta infection rate, R0, he writes, because of the P-Town cohort, then they're overstating it for the general population. The cohort was 85% male, both Washington Post and the New York Times have both failed to mention this, And hello, it was bear week, they write. Uh, And uh, points to another scientist, rightly mentions the packed bars, et cetera. But everyone's missing the, I'm reading his quote now, the horny bear in the room. Bears go to P-Town to have lots of fun, which includes lots of sex. Newsflash, gay men kiss when they have sex. If you asked an ID expert to suggest the most efficient way for an infected vaxxed person to infect another vaxxed person, she'd say, quote, let them deeply kiss for half a minute. Hoping the CDC used other cohorts for their new infection rate because p-town is skewed by gay boys being boys which is my i just i read this and i was like i didn't know anything about this this that what was Stop what's going mind, on vince
2: C- you knew all about it. okay no, fine
0: you're right my insistence my insistence is you giving were... me away no but yeah no but that does that does kind of color your your sense of okay like what are the chances that another event like what they described in cape cod could occur well you have very specific um, circumstances that that kind of spread was created in. And, and lastly, it looks like almost everybody was vaccinated. So if you're if you're being like, oh, wow, so many of the highest percentage of the people got it were vaccinated in Cape Cod. Yeah, because I think like 95% of the people who might have been at this event were vaccinated people.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with, I, if I understood what, I'm not sure that gentleman's name, Who was at P-Town. Peter Staley. Uh, Peter Staley is saying, I think if I understand correctly, I may not be following completely, but uh, if I understand what he's saying. and now, I, You're
0: doing it. Now you're doing it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think what he's saying is that um, this was. Unusually an
0: event, promiscuous.
2: Yeah. Uh, unusually promiscuous event where uh, people were partying and kissing and, and all of that and that caused this vaccine you know vaccinated to vaccinated infection and that should not be used as a model for um everything but what we are seeing now is this summer because it's summertime you know things like Lollapalooza and like other events where And I I don't want this to to come across, you know, my only worry about that P-Town event is it's going to sound like we're blaming gay men for getting together and doing what straight people do when they're in large places and they're drinking. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, you know, people kissing at bars and all of that.
0: I'm just relying Uh, on this one gay guy who's assessing it. That's all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's always the way to go is to rely on one gay guy. uh, He's my one gay
0: Twitter friend. (laughs) <laughs> actually, I'm not even friends with this guy, but I did see him and he was being quoted by serious epidemiologists. Actually, that's actually how I found him. Um, yeah. No, no I mean, like, I, they were saying, like, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't base all of our assessments on this one fairly unique event.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that that makes sense. Um, and again, the breakthrough infections. You know the, the thing is, if everybody's getting vaccinated, people aren't getting sick and going to the hospital for the most part. Ninety five percent of those people, right. ninety five out of hundred, are not getting sick, hospitalized, ending up in an ICU, or ended right. up in a morgue. Right. So, the the thing is, we want to encourage vaccination, but when you tell these have these headlines that make it seem like, you know, you're going to get the infection and not. People aren't necessarily diving into the articles and realizing that infection
3: doesn't mean severe illness. Um, It gets the goal of getting people
2: vaccinated so that they don't get sick, so that we don't have crazy death numbers in the future. And and again, I think that that event you're going to spread to vaccinated people. Uh, you know, vaccine to vaccine people and they'll go to other places in the country and spread it around to unvaccinated people. And that's not good. But like I said, events like, uh, you know, rolling loud or uh, even though it's outdoors, but people I'm sure are kissing and doing all kinds of doing the sex, uh, doing you know. the sex. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm sure that there's gonna be a lot of, you know, infection in those kinds of places, like you I know, Lollapalooza, so. Rolling Rolling Loud, South by Southwest, yeah, um, that's what's gonna cause a, a lot of infection, and not all of those people are going to be vaccinated.
0: Not a to be lame, but do you lame. do you ever look and you're like, God, thank God I'm married. <laughs> like, like yeah. I, this is just too much for me. It's just, it's just there's a lot going on out there. I'm just glad I'm not a part of it
2: all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally, totally, definitely. I feel well, like that often.
0: I know. I know. Thank Thank God for our watch. Uh, and they put up with a lot, including this Jason Nichols, as always. Thank you, brother. It was good to talk to you. And we've had a, uh, it was, and, and we'll try and do this. We want to run down these, these Sunday show clips. I think it's a good idea uh, to, you know, tell you, you know, what are they talking about in the news and what does it really mean? We'll cut, we'll get behind it. And in the meantime, make sure to subscribe to uh, this podcast, wherever you can find it. Vincent Jason saved the nation. You can definitely find it on the daily caller website. That's dailycaller.com, as well as on YouTube, Please like, share, subscribe, and comment to make sure other people get to enjoy this as well. Jason Nichols, thank you. I'm Vince Colonize.
2: Thank you very much. Remember, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're dropping episodes. So definitely pay attention, stay tuned, and we'll be at you. Peace.